Welcome, wrestling fans, to the first Classic Wrestling Memories of 2018. I hope the holidays were as good to you as they were to us over here at Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a little bit of a different show. We've done shows like this before. It's kind of a throwback to the first show we did with Mike Mooneyhan talking the original Starcade. But this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories is focusing solely on a single event. We're doing one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time. And fortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Coming at you from these nice padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let me echo Seth's sentiments. Uh, I hope everybody had a safe and happy new year and holidays. And It's 2018, and we still got a whole lot of classic wrestling memories to talk about. And uh, it's going to be kind of an interesting show. We haven't done one like this in a while, but it's always kind of fun to be, I think, focused on one particular show as opposed to an era or, an, or a, you know, personality. So this should be fun. As the title of the volume states, we're doing WCW's Great American Bash, 1992. And really, if, if you don't know this era of WCW, this is a couple of years before they started doing Nitro, uh, what happened was Bill Watts, and correct me if I'm wrong, Train, mm-hmm. Bill Watts was hired to effectively be the booker of the promotion, correct? Sure. Uh, he was, I don't think he was given the senior vice president. Maybe he was. I, I can't remember what his exact title was. But he was given more than just the book. I think that he he was also given some of the business, uh, you know, uh, responsibilities as well, uh, you know, budgeting. So he was essentially kind of a promoter as well, right? Then, right? Probably be uh, akin to like what Eric Bischoff would hold later with the company during the Nitro era, um, where, you know, uh, obviously Eric had a, had a booking committee. Uh, while he was running the company, but he still had a lot of, of say in the creative end. Uh, Bill was doing both. And I, and I want to say, shoot, uh, it was, it was, who had the book before Bill? I was only or Dusty maybe. Um, I know that they wanted. I, I think Dusty may. Yeah. I, I think Dusty may have a hand in booking at this point because no, obviously no, they're I pushing Dusty pretty. I think he was gone at this point. Um, I think what had happened was, if I remember right, is that, that you know, they had had Oli and they had Dusty, and I can't remember which order, and it just it wasn't working. I want to say it was Oli first, and maybe this was after Dusty had had enough, and they wanted a wrestling person. And obviously, you know, Bill Watts was well-known for having a successful uh, wrestling promotion with Mid-South. I mean, even though Crockett had bought UWF, the real reason the UWF went under wasn't because Bill Watts' booking was bad, and it wasn't because he wasn't drawing. His entire regional era area was, you know, Oklahoma, Louisiana were oil states, and there was a huge uh, uh, bust in the oil business at the time that he sold it to Turner or to Crockett, excuse me. And that was really the reason why Bill Watts original territory went under nothing of his own doing it just the economy of the area he ran in was depressed and when you're having a hard time putting food on the table well obviously extra cash to go to a wrestling show is one of the last things you're worried about and so that affected him mm-hmm. uh, i mean other than that he was a quite quite success i mean if you think about it he was able to through aggressively pushing his syndication he was uh, essentially the third biggest promotion in the country after the Crockett's event. And he was, he was threatening them. Uh, and he did it in a much shorter time, uh, you know, essentially a year and a half, two years to get to that level. Once he decided to do it, then it, then it took Vince to get where he was or the Crockett's to get where they were. And Vince, you know, did it with USA network and the Crockett's did it with Turner. He did it without either one of those cable overlays. So that's kind of impressive if you think about it, you know? Right, all over broadcast TV or or you know syndicate syndication TV. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it wasn't like he was a, an unknown commodity. I guess is one of you know is really the point I'm trying to make. That's part of why he was brought in. He was a he was a he was a wrestling person that had a track record and history of running a successful promotion. I also think you know some of the some of the guys had started to get out of control. You got to remember these are the early days of guaranteed contracts, something that had never existed before in wrestling. That all started with the Crockett's right before he sold Turner. Um, and Bill Watts, much like Jerry Jarrett, was known how to uh, pinch a penny, shall we say. And uh, he, mm-hmm. Bill was not the kind of guy that was going to take a lot of crap from the boys. 
Um, and so I think that was another reason why not or, or Dusty would either, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just the reason why. Yeah, I don't want to get too carried away on Bill, but even though he is a big part of this because th- this was essentially his brainchild, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- this is a couple of years after the Turner buyout, and of course, the people trying to call the shots for WCW were were suits, mm-hmm. you know, TV executives wearing the business suits, and here comes Bill Watts in, uh, in, in like sweatpants and a, and a flannel shirt, you know, off of his Harley, you know? Right. I mean, I, yeah, how, how, how well are those people going to mix? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard the, the, you know, from several people in the company at the time, Bill was, I mean, if he, Bill Watts is Bill Watts. He, and he makes no uh, bones about that. He's, you know, a big rough guy, a little bit of a bully. Uh, he's an alpha male for sure. Um, you know, he's ex pro football player, ex wrestler, tough guy. Um, like that in his wrestlers and uh, had, had never had any problems, you know, telling anybody how he felt about much of anything. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. I've heard many people involved saying it was, it was scary sometimes though. Cause like you said, these are, these are suits, these are business people. And he would come in in what was, you know, the standard, uh, wrestler attire when they weren't in the ring of the early nineties, which was, you know, a gold gym T-shirt, Zubaz weightlifting pants, tennis shoes, and a fanny pack. <laughs> you know, and tight and and uh, and and CNN Towers wearing this. That was not going to mix well with the, you know, the power suit, red ties. Of the, I think you get the idea. <laughs> right, right. But it's also worth noting here because of how how big of a uh, part of the show this, uh, this was. WCW actually had split from the NWA around around 1990, I want to say. Right, right. And this, this is about the time uh, Flair jumped uh, to, to Vince. But fast forward another year or two, and uh, under Bill Watts, WCW is able, is able to rejoin the NWA. So it's, that's, that's, the main that's part- not correct. <laughs> you, you're way off oh, okay. on that one, buddy. It wasn't about they were able to. Re- oh. They separated from the NWA of their own volition, okay? What happened was, this is where you're going to get a history lesson. <laughs> what happened was, W. I look forward to it. Well, if you remember, the Crockett's became the largest territory in the NWA. And in their, their move, pre-Turner buyout, to, to compete with Vince, they started gobbling up other territories. That included Championship Wrestling from Florida. That included, uh, you know, uh, Central States Wrestling, which is Bob Geigel and Harley Race. Um, even though he had split away from the NWA, it was still a territory, UWF, Bill Watts. And as they grew, and Crockett continued to become the reelected Jim Crockett Jr., that is, the NWA president, there were only a handful of promotions left that were really NWA promote territories. The territory system had died at that point, essentially. And it was really a two-horse two race, Vince and the Crockett. You still have these small promoters, and some of them we will cover in, in, in future episodes, like Don Owen in, in Portland and the guys in Memphis, you know, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, they were still wanting to have say on who the NWA world champion was. And it was, it was Crockett could not afford trying to have this fight, this battle with Vince to lend out Ric Flair to a 400-seat house show when he needed him to build. You see what I'm saying? And so WCW just said, this is stupid. We don't need you guys. We're going to create our own belts. We're not even seen as the NWA by the fans anymore anyways. We're seen as WCW. And so it happened. that the split happened. Apparently, and I cannot remember the gentleman's name, and it'll probably come to me before the end of the show. So if it is, folks, we'll we'll, we'll let you know, and we'll put it in before we get done recording here. The guy who was the, I want to say either the accountant or the lawyer, I believe it was the attorney, for the Crockett's not for Turner, for the Crockett. He had power of attorney from Jim Jr. or something, and he still essentially had, was the, he was the guy who was the liaison on all the business end of things when you're dealing with what the entity, the NWA, was. He gathered up a few other promoters, like Dennis Corluzzo, Hank, Herb Abrams, some other guys that still had small NWA stuff, and got WCW over, over, over Monopoly. Uh, uh, because of all the stuff I just talked about. And 
Bill Watts coming back in was that olive branch put out there trying to resolve all this without there being legal action. Does that make a little more sense now that I've explained it? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's really what was going on. It's one of those things that, mm-hmm. you know, fans, we don't care about. But uh, it, it's kind of fascinating when you look at the history. It's, it's a whole bunch of alpha males trying to get a, get a piece of a pie, if, if, that, makes, if that makes any sense. And, and, right. and, you know, I think that this is a way to appease those small NWA guys without having to pay them a lot of money. Um, so anyway. I didn't mean to cut you off, Seth. I was just like, no, no, you're misinformed. I didn't want, I didn't want to step on your toes. <laughs> oh no, I, I, ne- I never mind being corrected. But the most of the matches on this show were part of a tournament to crown new NWA tag team champions. And right. anybody that knows me knows I like tag team wrestling, and I'm a sucker for tournaments. So, mm-hmm. oh, big shocker! I, you know, I really like this this concept. And the main event also has one of my favorite matches of all time, Sting defending the WCW world title against Big Van Vader. Right. Just just look at some of these teams here that are in this tournament for the NWA Tag Team Champions. We got the Steiner Brothers, who had actually already been eliminated by this point, but uh, the Miracle Violence Connection of Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Terry Gordy, Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger, Nikita Koloff and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Hiroshi Hase, who I think would then go on to hold the international title a few years later, mm-hmm. and Shinya Hashimoto, the Freebirds of Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, and uh, Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes, and finally get this team, Ravishing Rick Rude and Stunning Steve Austin. I mean, <laughs> look at the lineup of Hall of Famers there that, I, that I just listed off. Right, right. Uh, if you know anything about Bill Watts, <clears throat> know this. He likes guys that are big and rugged and tough like him. And you listed a whole bunch on this card with Barry Windham and Doc and Gordy and the Steiners and Vader. <laughs> That's just the kind of guys that had always been the kind of guys Bill had pushed and used. And some of them were actual guys he had used back when he was running Mid-South, like Doc and Gordy, like the Freebirds. You know, uh, these were all guys Sting. Sting got his start with him. You know, well, got his start in Memphis, but he became, got his first push in Mid-South. So, these are all guys that Bill's familiar with. Um, you also have to understand, NWA still did mean something in Japan. Thus, the heavy uh, uh, array of Japanese talent on this card. Um, the NWA was still important there. Those titles meant something there. And once again, Japan has a much more rugged style than, than, than what we have here in North America. I think Bill's always liked that. And, and you have to remember, at this time, Doc and Gordy were the top gaijin or top, you know, non-Japanese tag team in Japan. So to get them, you know, to get them to come to America and do this tournament, I'm sure some kind of deal had to be brokered, which would explain some of this other Japanese talent on the card. Right. Because uh, at, at this time, WCW had a working agreement with New Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would see guys like Muda and Chono. Uh, come over for for big shows, right. and I think that's also why Doc and Gordy didn't stick around much longer after this, right? Because they were loyal to Baba and All Japan. That's correct. And signing a contract with WCW would mean essentially working for New Japan, and they they were too loyal to right. uh, Baba to to do that. Exactly. If, if I have my my facts you're straight, exactly, on that one. you're exactly correct on that. And, and just, just so people understand the time set we're talking about in 1992, if you're, if you're familiar with the current, I know you are, Seth, but for our listeners who are not familiar with the current New Japan product, they're the top three guys in the company over the last, what, five, six years have been, uh, until he came to America, Shinsuke Nakamura, Yoshiro Tanahashi, and, and Shibata. And they were called the Three Musketeers. They were guys that were... Uh, young rookies in the early 2000s who, who they groomed to be the top guys. Well, there was a similar group uh, in, the, in, the, in the 80s of Hiroshi Hase, Shinya Hashimoto, and Kinji Muto, a.k.a. the Great Muda. Guess who trained Tanahashi, Shibata, and Nakamura? The three guys, so the, you see all three of them are on this card. Well, Muda's not on this card. Two of the three are on this card. So by this point, those guys were then in 1992 where Nakamura, Tanahashi, and Shibata are now. Do you follow what I'm saying when I say that, Seth? Yes. Okay. They, yeah. they were the yeah. guys. I, were, I, I think Chono's. 
Chona was in that group. I think Chona was up there, too. Chona was in that group as well. These were these guys that were groomed, and and they just knew from the moment they came in the dojo they were going to be major players and stars in New Japan. We're seeing it now because it's it's 10, 12 years later. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. that's what they became. That's kind of always the way it's been. And so I don't want fans to think that I see the backlash against the guy who, in my opinion, has everything you need to be a top star, like say a Roman Reigns, and he gets he gets rejected because the fans are like, "Oh, you're forcing it on him." That's the way it's always been in wrestling, and not just here; it happens over there too. You know, because I know a lot of these fans are, are mm-hmm. gaga for Japanese wrestling. You know, Ricky Dozen, who we are going to do an episode on sometime here in, in 2018, he learned wrestling from what he saw from American GIs. <laughs> Why would you think what they do over in Japan that much different behind the scenes than what we do over here? That's all I'm saying. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into the actual event itself. This is Geekville Radio, and we'll be right back talking WCW Great American Bash 1992. Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. <laughs> Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast, Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. All right, we are back talking WCW Great American Bash 1992. Hey, Seth. And it really... Yeah. Before we get into this with our listeners, they're probably wondering, why did we just draw some obscure pay-per-view from 25 years ago out of the thin air? Why did we choose this one? It was my idea, but why don't you tell the fans why it was my idea? Well, I just kind of figured it, it came down to it being one of my favorite shows and um, just it, it, it being such a wrestling-heavy show and really, um, other than that, I guess I'm not sure. I, I just I just thought you'd, you'd like... You'd like to talk about one of my favorite yeah, shows. Yeah, this is your favorite pay-per-view of all time. And, and, and just, you know, maybe I'm exposing some things, pulling back the curtain for our listeners. I've always felt like we, we heavily covered the Crockett's. We've had several episodes that were Crockett-centric. Um, and, of course, our listeners know that is the territory I grew up in. It's, it's what made me a wrestling fan. The way I always perceived it, at least from what you had told me, Seth, this was a show that really made you a wrestling fan. So I felt, you know... <laughs> mm-hmm. History. Let's talk a little of your history, Seth. Something you're personally invested in. So that's why I suggested it. I was already, okay. Yeah, you know, a little bit behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is. It is definitely the show that made me a WCW fan. I think it was my first WCW pay per view that I that I had bought. Rip. Yeah. Um, just on the old fashioned cable cable pay your money and that that whole deal, huh? Right. Right. I remember watching. I remember watching this show, but I didn't see it until after. And as I've, I've discussed before here and on other, our other podcast, I served a two-year mission for my church right out of high school. So I was on my mission when this happened. But it was one of the first pay-per-views that I, a friend had taped that I watched when I got home. So there you go. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the show then. Uh, the, the match kicked off with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Nikita Koloff facing Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger. And it's an interesting matchup, in my opinion, because both teams were babyfaces. All four guys involved were uh, were babyfaces. Do you remember anything about this match in particular, or did you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I remember the storylines coming into it, which play into what you're talking about. If you if you remember, they had created, about a year before this, the, the junior heavyweight or light heavyweight title, which was essentially the cruiserweight title of the era. It had a tournament, and the finals had come down to Liger and Tillman. And they had been the two top guys in that division for about a year in the company. So it was kind of cool that you would take the top two guys and make them a tag team. So that, that was the story behind that team. And then the key to Steamboat, this is the era of the, the Dangerous Alliance, the, the top heel faction in the, in the company. And um, they had a group of baby faces that were fighting them, and Nikita and Ricky Steamboat were in that group. Nikita had come back after a long time being off, and the last time the fans had seen him, he had been a heel. Uh, so he was came back as a baby face, but there was always this air of mystery about could he be trusted. So that was kind of the dynamic going into that, that team as well. So an interesting dynamic amongst the four guys going in. Like I said, all baby faces, all with storylines that, that, that tied into their partners of the two teams. You know, I remember I, we both watched this show. Seth watched all, but I watched part of it to prepare for this because it's been a long time. Uh, I never thought Nikita was bad in the ring. He wasn't great. Um, 
but it was obvious he was the weak he was the weak link of these four guys. I think that became pretty obvious pretty quick, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has his style, but I think that's what they were trying to go for. Is you have mm-hmm. the powerhouse in Nikita and the great technical wrestler in in Steamboat. And one of the things I remember Jesse pointing out is Jesse Ventura and Jim Ross did commentary. Uh, one of the things Jesse Ventura pointed out was uh, the the interesting thing about Steamboat is he's that he's this great technical wrestler, but if he wants to, he can take to the air and fly around with the cruiserweights if he has exactly. to. Exactly. I mean, I, I've heard Flair say many, many times, the only reason that, that Steamboat wasn't doing 450s and moonsaults was because nobody was doing them in the 1970s. It wasn't because he lacked the athleticism, you know? <laughs> and I think if you go back and watch any Ricky Steamboat matches, I think that becomes very apparent very quickly, that this guy was a phenomenal athlete uh, uh, in any era. Um, I, I think another thing that we didn't bring up that probably is, is, is important in this match is any other match Part of the changes that Bill Watts made when he came in to run WCW was he wanted to go, quote-unquote, old school. So he had banned moves from the top rope, and he had, he had made, uh, you know, uh, he had removed the mat from around, from around the ringside. Very controversial amongst fans and the boys. But because this wasn't a, these were not WCW matches, they were NWA matches, the top rope rule was, was not in effect. They could, they could come off the top rope which is obviously very important to guys like Liger and like Tillman. Um, and I also think because it was NWA matches, over-the-top rope was an automatic disqualification, where WCW was not, if I'm also correct. Am I wrong on that one, or, or do you remember it the same way as well? No, you're, you're, you're correct. Okay. If you, in, in, in traditional NWA rules, uh, if you got clotheslined or thrown over the top rope, unless it was specifically a battle royal, mm-hmm. then it was a then it was a disqualification. Right. What I'm saying is that WCW uh, but, was not. It was not WCW. Correct. Right. And so because they, they would do the the clothesline over the top rope all mm-hmm. the time. And the, the, the intro to the show was them actually talking to Bill Watts, and if I remember right, he actually made it very clear to the to the viewers and the fans that the, the tag matches would be NWA rules. So. Over the top was a disqualification. Off the top was okay. The main event was a WCW match. Over the top rope was fine, but off the top rope was a disqualification. So, you know. Correct. All right. What did you think of this match? Uh, I, I really liked it. I mean, one of the things we talked about off mic was some, sometimes how botches at times don't really bother me because there was a point in this match where Steamboat tried to do the bridge into the turnaround crucifix yep. that he's done so many times before, but, right. but fell partway through. Uh, and this is an example of that. You know, we've seen Steamboat do that move thousands of times, but mm-hmm. Michael Jordan didn't make every shot. Right. And that's a, that's a very cooperative move. Both guys got to be very strong to do that move. Um, you know, and it, it, it was, that was a move that, that, that sequence of moves, the bridge, you know, it would be a bridge into a, you know, he'd spin around into a, into a backslide. That was a standard in Steamboat flare matches. They always, going back to the 70s. You know, that was, so that's where Steamboat started doing it. And you saw a lot of other guys down the line incorporate that particular spot in the match. The Steiners did it a lot. And Shawn Michaels does it a lot or did it a lot. Um, you know, it's a cool move, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the, the finish was a double down between Steamboat and Pillman. Uh, Pillman went to the top rope. Steamboat crotched him. Liger tried to get into the ring, but Koloff cut Liger off. And then Pillman went for the high cross body, but Steamboat rolled through and got the pin. And this was just an, a perfect example of high-energy action match that's, that is set to open the show and get the crowd pumping and kind of set the stage for the rest for the rest of the night. Do you think that's what they intended to do with that match? Oh, that was the intention, but it was definitely what the result. Um, I did like the finish because it was something you don't see much anymore, and it's something that I always try to incorporate in my tag team matches because um, it, it's just logical. If you're getting ready to go over, especially for the babyface team, the guy who's not making the pin should should run over and try to prevent the other guy from interfering with 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 the hot finish. You know, like Nikita did with Phil with Liger. That just don't do that much anymore. It's never made any sense to me. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're 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 never been in the ring, but from a logic standpoint, you get it, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Why why stand there and let the other guy break up the pin? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you used to see that all the time in the eighties and in the early nineties. That was a staple of. All the great tag teams in, in the big matches, you know, the Andersons, the Russians, both the Expresses, you, you name it. You know, the Bulldogs, the Hart Foundation. 
when your guy's making the pin, the other guy, you know, the other guy's teammates invariably would come in and try to kind of break it up. You need to go over there and stop them. So you get the win. And, and I was, so that was kind of nice mm-hmm. to see because you, you don't ever see that anymore. Well, well, heck, you don't see much tag team wrestling at all anymore, but I digress. Well, Eric Bischoff interviewed the Steiners backstage. Uh, the Steiners were at the time the current IWGP tag champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, going back to the working agreement with, with New Japan. Right. And the, the, the main reason I bring this interview up was this is evidence that I would take the later Big Papa Pump over the past, quote, great wrestler unquote Scott Steiner. Scott Steiner was a terrible interview. I mean, he was, he was a horrible promo, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It really wasn't until he crafted the, or whether, whether he came up with it himself or whether he ran with it based on somebody else's, but you know, I, I would take big Papa pump over this Scott Steiner any day. At least it's a promo. Yeah, for sure. And I'd also forgotten how great of a hype guy Bischoff was. Yeah. I remember this time Bischoff was not the executive vice president. He was just an announcer. You know, he, he was, t- he was talent. Yep. He was on their account. That was it. But the next match was the fabulous Freebirds of Michael P.S. Hayes and Jimmy Jam Garvin. And they faced Hiroshi Hase and Shinya Hashimoto. And we talked about before Hashimoto was original three Musketeers. The Freebirds came out to their not bad street song that I only have a little bit of memory about. I'd forgotten that they tried yes. doing another song. It wasn't good. It's just that they're, they're bad streets the song. So I think we can agree on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Freebirds acted as the faces. Uh, I don't think the fans knew who Hase and Hashimoto were. Now, Ross mentioned the U.S. tag titles and that Dick Slater and the Barbarian were the current champions. That's correct. I have no memory of them. Now, granted, it's been 25 years, but it's like Dick Slater and the Barbarian? Yeah, they were. tag team? They were. Uh, they were, and you have to remember, the Freebirds had been the U.S. tag team which was, of course, the secondary tag titles at the time. That's why he mentioned it during that match, because I believe it was the Freebirds they beat those they beat for those belts. Um, you remember, this is a very strange time for WCW. <laughs> I mean, there was a, one of the other things, before Bill Watts got there, uh, they brought George Scott back, and George Scott tried to bring in a lot of guys that he had made money with back in the 70s, and sometimes that worked, uh, you know, like, you know, that was that worked when he brought in guys like Dick Slater and Junkyard Dog, who weren't as good as they were in their prime, but still had enough charisma and whatever. But he also brought back the Iron Sheik. That didn't work out so good. So, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they got the heat on Hayes. Uh, Hayes finally countered with the left hand for both opponents. Prettiest uh, left Still jab. one of the best punches I've ever seen. Prettiest left jab ever in wrestling. Things gorgeous. He can do that and he can talk. After that, there's not a whole lot, Michael Hayes. <laughs> Except draw money and piss off. Garvin got the hot tag and it broke down into a four-way. Finish came when Hashimoto kicked Garvin and Hase followed it up with a Northern Light suplex, which is one of my favorite suplexes. Which was his finisher, by the way. Um, that was that's that's Hase's. In fact, I think he might be credited with creating that particular suplex. If I'm not, if memory serves me correct, the the, the you know over the top into the bridge. I believe Hase is credited with creating. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That that could be. But any other thoughts on this match? Or? Uh, I've always been a big Hase fan. Uh, like you, I'm a big fan of Northern Light Suplex. So much so, it was a, a, a standard move in my moveset. Um, I'm a huge fan of this particular incarnation of the Freebirds. Um, love the Freebirds, the original three. Love Jimmy, Jimmy Garvin when he was gorgeous. Jimmy Garvin with either you know Sunshine or Precious. Didn't really click for me at this point. I think they were kind of passe. Um, Hashimoto... I've always been a fan of, and he's, 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 it's weird because he was a very flexible, athletic guy who was kind of pudgy. So he did, I don't think a lot of American fans appreciated him the way Japanese fans did. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's an opening match, you know, no big, it was somebody had somebody, they wanted the Japanese team to move on. Some they had to beat somebody. So they fed him the free verse. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. And in hindsight, I was actually kind of, uh, I, I'm actually kind of disappointed that the Freebirds lost so early because, uh, the fact that Terry Gordy was also in the tournament with, mm-hmm. with Doc. I mean, what would have happened if the Freebirds had gotten into the r- ring with one of their original members? Michael, I don't want to fight you. We're brothers. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's my Terry yeah. Gordy. May he rest in peace. Yeah. But uh, Tony Schiavone interviewed Bill Watts and Hiro Matsuda. Uh, Watts had the what we now know as the big gold belt. And Watts also announced a tournament for the next NWA champion that would take place in Japan. And if memory serves, um, 
Chono wins that that yeah, tournament. Yeah, either Chono or Rude. I can't um, remember which one. Yeah, because um, I seem to recall a few months after this, they did a Chono Muda match on a on a WCW pay per view, and I remember Barry Windham uh, beating Muda for the title at I think it was this that year's Starcade. It was either ninety two or ninety three Starcade. Right, and also remember history lesson: they had just gotten the belt back from Ric Flair because he had taken it with the WWF. So just so fans, our listeners can understand what all's going on behind the scenes at this point in time. Crazy time for wrestling. Mm-hmm. And now, they mentioned a name here that I didn't, did not recognize because I'm really only fluent in the last three years in New Japan, but Hiro Matsuda mentioned a Saganugi. A Saganugi? I did not Yeah, this like, like a name. Says, says. Um, are you sure you're correct? You're pronouncing it correctly? Because uh, Inoki would have still been calling the shots for New Japan at this point, right? Probably. Yeah, yeah he definitely would have. But you've got to remember, even they had kayfabe on, on air, you know, authority figures. So uh, mm-hmm. that name's not ringing a bell. I I wasn't, quite frankly, into New Japan at this point. I was getting more I was getting more into all Japan. I was into New Japan in the 80s. So I'll have to, I'll have to plead ignorance on this one. Okay. Well, I'm sure I'm sure some of our listeners will know what, who or what, what we're talking about. And definitely let us know, classicwrestlingmemories.com. And, and and not to not to be a, a bud, but what does Matt Suda know about New Japan? He's been in Florida for the last twenty years at this point. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> uh, the next match was uh, was Ravishing Rick Rude and Stunning Steve Austin facing Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. Um, there's one thing that I will give Vince McMahon credit for. Rude did his usual, you know, what I'd like to have right now promo as Medusa's taken off taken off his uh, belt and his uh, his robe and, and his robe. Which, which of course, made me very jealous. But um, that was the point. Austin is just kind of pace is just kind of pacing around behind Rude, and Medusa is just kind of standing there. Mm-hmm. Vince, especially modern day Vince, he would have made sure to get everybody standing side by side to get that perfect shot while while Rude is talking. Right. You know, I can I can see how Vince would find that visually more effective than just a guy pacing around behind while another guy cuts a promo. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's WCW. What can we say? They're not in business anymore. There are there are reasons why. Right. One of the things that you have, anybody who's a wrestling fan has to understand, part of the reason Vince won was because he just had better production values than anybody else, including WCW. He just did. There are just things that just mm-hmm. happened on other wrestling shows, televisions, that would never happen on Vince's. It is what it is. Right, right. And Barry and Dustin came to the ring to a ripoff of ZZ Top's LaGrange, which is fitting because they're both from Texas and ZZ Top's from Texas. And um, it's, it's kind of an old school 101 because they're, they're trying to establish Dustin. So what do they do? They put him under the wing of a veteran. Right. Because they call him the Metro. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's one of the greatest intro songs of all time. I'm sorry. It's cheesy as it was. <laughs> Come to think of it, three out of the four guys in this match are from Texas, because obviously yeah. Austin's from Texas. Of course, he was being billed as from being Hollywood, California at the point, that point in time. The stunning Steve, but yes, you're you're correct. Oh uh, yeah, I've said it before. For for South Carolinian to say this, it kind of hurts me. We would not not be the same without the state of Texas. Let's <laughs> just be honest. It's produced a lot of great talent. Mm-hmm. And this was also a throwback to how good of a technical wrestler Austin was. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, with the Stone Cold gimmick, it fits that he would be more of a brawler and less of a technical guy. Right. Uh, I don't know how much of that was the gimmick and how much of it was the the neck injury, but Austin's selling in this was great. I mean, he sold a slap like it rocked him to the core. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a reason, once again, to bring up Vincent Mann, there is a reason why, as bad as it was, if you understand what the ringmaster was supposed to be, he was supposed to be the greatest technical wrestler in the world. Then he chose somebody like Austin to do it. And most of that change was due to the neck injury. He had to change his style because he couldn't do what you saw in this match anymore. He just couldn't. He wasn't physically able to do it anymore. Now, what he did at Stone Cold, of course, was, was awesome. One of the greatest brawlers of all time. But it was it was not the same in-ring style. It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. But they got the heat on, heat on Barry. Uh, Dustin got the hot tag, ran wild. Randy Anderson's running all over the place trying to avoid getting trampled. <laughs> and Dustin hit a top rope lariat on Austin to score the pin. Right. Well, to get off the top rope, because so, this, this is an NWA match. Right. Again, yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, Bischoff interviewed. Go ahead. 
big fan of that particular tag team of, of, of Dustin and, and Bailey. I thought that was, of course, when I got to know both those guys, they were working for Dustin's dad as a tag team. They, history I thought was really good. They're similar size. They're both Texans who play that up as part of their gimmick. You know, just really was always a fan of, of that. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming you were a fan of that tag team too. I think Jesse was calling them the Texicans. The Texicans. What? Tag team too, if I, if I know you pretty well, and I think I do. Am I right? What was that? I said, no, I'm pretty sure that you were a big fan of that tag team as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, I, I, I loved I loved them as a tag team together. They, I wish they would have stayed together longer, but I think the whole point was to do the traditional. They're a tag team for a while, and then and then one turns, right? You know, right. And um, of course, I know Barry loves to be a heel one, and probably was the one that heel. I've said, and I love you, Barry. I think you're a much better babyface than you ever heel. Just my opinion. But Bischoff interviewed Big Van Vader and Harley Race. We got a Hartley promo. Enough said. Uh, knowing what happened a few years later with Bischoff, I still consider myself a Bischoff fan. You're just seeing him just standing here, essentially being talent, it's it, it's just kind of funny to look at. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Sonny Schiavone has said on his podcast something that's very true about the wrestling business. And he told the story of the day that Bischoff found out he was going to be the new executive vice president. And excuse me, Eric and his wife, uh, went out to dinner with Tony and Tony's wife at a little Mexican restaurant in Atlanta. And Tony essentially told Eric, you're going to change. You have to, because now you're in charge. And you're not, I know you say you don't want to, you will, and you have to. And, you know, I know the old cliche, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know if we want to go that far. But uh, when you're in charge, sometimes you got to be a jerk. Sometimes that's your job. And I think that what you're talking about now is a good example of, you know, Bischoff changed. And, and I know a lot of people think, well, that's because, you know, I Bischoff's not a good guy. Yeah, yeah you would. We all, you know, everybody changes and leaves that kind of, you have to. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> the next match was Dr. Death and Terry Gordy facing Nikita Koloff and Ricky Steamboat in the next round. So we got three hosses and a technical master. Mm-hmm. Steamboat bumped early for Gordy. And Jesse, once again brought the storytelling in his commentary. He pointed out that in the first round, Koloff and Steamboat had to deal with cruiserweight flyers, and now they have to deal with these big, tough hosses, and that's a completely different game plan right? that you have to execute. Right, right. And, and, and you know, it, it's also the story can be told. Nikita and Steamboat are a, a newer tag team. Doc and Good have been tagging together. So there's a lot of stories that can be told, uh, you know, in, in a match of that caliber. Uh, anytime I see Terry Gordy, now he in the early 80s because he'd already had a couple of his health issues, but my God, how good was Terry Gordy for a guy his size? Man alive. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And he could, you know, and Doc, that guy was just an animal. And of course, both of them, you know, sadly, neither one of them with us anymore. But, um, wow, what a tag team. Jesse even pointed out that Steamboat and Koloff had made exactly like one or two tags while. Doc and Gordy were mm-hmm. making several tags. Back to that storytelling of, uh, yeah, teaming together versus the team that's teamed together a lot. Jesse also put over the referee and the rules because the referee noticed that Doc wasn't the legal man when he tried to paint and pin Ricky after a double suplex. Mm-hmm. So a heel announcer endorses the enforcement of the rules. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they got the heat on Steamboat until Koloff got a hot tag. Koloff got cut off and... Then they got heat on Nikita. The finish was Steamboat going to the top rope on Doc, but Gordy grabbing Steamboat and tossing him into Doc, who then hit the Oklahoma Stampede for the win. That's a cool finish. And, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great finish. Jesse also pointed out that Ricky and Nikita had already wrestled while Doc and Gordy had not. And right. more on that later. Right. Uh, we got Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham versus Hase and Hashimoto. Lots of reversals in this, lots of mat wrestling. I really like this match, actually. Heat on Dustin. Barry got the hot tag again. The finish was Barry throwing Hashimoto out of the ring and hitting Hase with a lariat for the pin. Uh, anything you remember about this match? Or? Just chain wrestling. Um, this is still a common era where you could chain wrestle and entertain fans. Sadly, that's not true anymore. But, you know. I, yeah. I'm a firm believer in chain wrestling. I incorporated a lot into my own, my own in-ring performances. I just think that, to me, that's wrestling. 
you know, any much more so than yeah, rock line stuff is amazing. Yes, guys that can do cool power moves is amazing. But if it's supposed to be wrestling, you know, quote unquote, chain wrestling is really what kind of sends it home because you're doing holds. You, you, you know, I get you going for it. Tony Schiavone and Magnum TA interviewed Ron Simmons, who put over WCW. And remember, uh, Simmons won the world title before year's end. I don't know why it didn't happen at Starcade, but uh, I think it's pretty clear in hindsight. Uh, and I probably should have been smart enough to see when it happened that they were grooming Ron Simmons for that. At some point in time, he was going to yes. face the world champion down the road. Yes. So even though he didn't wrestle on this card, they gave Simmons enough presence to so you know he stays in the back of your mind. Like, yes. Okay, he's going to be a future contender. Him as a top contender, and and you know, I understand. Um, even though. <laughs> It's going to sound bad, but you that's why it's called a work. You don't understand why you accept something, but it's because of stuff like this, because you've been conditioned through placement to accept it. Um, you know, it's that proverbial rub, you know, that it's that proverbial push that turns it a lot. You know, a lot of, you know, wrestling fans try to use it. They don't understand what a push is, but <laughs> nonetheless, they, you know, like you said, they, they, they were all on for you know a run at the belt and by doing this when it happens you can accept it you're not thinking it just comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. so like uh, I don't know on every show for the fans not to, to, to throw it to the because if you have a surprise on every show it's not really a surprise then is it right but, yeah, I don't know all right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into the first of the two main events for the show. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back. If you're looking for a gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Fried. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games, achievements, and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFrag.com, part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. All right, welcome back. We're going to talk the semi-main event of Great American Bash 1992 that aired in, I think it was July of 1992 for WCW. And this was the WCW world title match with Sting defending against Big Van Vader. And as I said at the top of the show, anybody that knows me knows that this is one of my favorite matches of all time, in my opinion. Uh, This is a five-star match. Everything in the opening moments and the, to the commentary and everything uh, is captivating. They even had shots of Tony Schiavone sitting next to Ron Simmons watching the match, added to the drama. And when I first saw this match, you know, 16-year-old Mark, seeing Sting shine at the beginning where he's backdropping and clotheslining Vader over the top rope, you know, just like I thought I was seeing Godzilla get toppled. I mean, <laughs> you, you've seen enough of this match to, to know what I mean, like as, as, as far as right. the execution of this match, right? Right. Uh, for a lot of people, is Steve Flair. Um, I felt that this match had of those matches that I like, and, and what I mean that are so great, besides the storytelling, besides the athleticism, was it was exciting. That it was entertainment, but seemed like a sport. Like they were really trying to depend and meet each other. Do you follow what I'm saying when I say that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, th- there was also, uh, uh, I-, I think they were take- taking a shot at Vince here because of the WBF, but uh, Vader countered Sting's sunset flip with a vertical splash. Mm-hmm. And Vader is posing, doing the double bicep. And I think it was Ross as well. He's got no future in bodybuilding. And Jesse says, well, there ain't no money in it. <laughs> right. And, and so this this match, though it is a complete stop in Flair versus Steve mode, it has the same outcome. It's entertaining intensity and the style of both guys, but they are trying to beat each other, you know? And um, yeah. it, it, it's interesting. Well, I mean, right down to Vader putting Sting in the Scorpion Deathlock. 
you know, beat the champion with his own move. Well, the reason that I love this match so much, I mean, I, you expressed your reasons why. This match, to me, is very similar to what is still considered by many the gold standard, which would be Steamboat versus Flair. Now, the reason that I love Steamboat versus Flair is because it was, it's, one of the, it's one of the last times in wrestling, maybe, or one of the times in wrestling, where it was equally entertaining and had the, the entertainment side, but also had a sports side in, in the sense that it seemed like Steamboat and Flair were actually doing real moves and trying to beat each other. Yeah, I guess you're following what I'm saying when I say that. It's entertaining because of the pace. Yeah, but yeah absolutely. Well, Vader and Sting, even though they're extremely, it's a completely different in-ring in style than Steamboat Flair, it has the same feel to me. It's entertaining because of the power moves and the stuff, but it's still believable. It doesn't look phony or choreographed. It looks like these two guys are in a fight trying to win. They're just using different in-ring styles. So to me, mm-hmm. this match has always had that kind of, same kind of vibe. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, when I tell people that, they're like, he's crazy. I'm like, I didn't say it was a technical masterpiece like Steamboat and Flair. It had the same vibe. It's just a different in-ring style. And, and so to me, that's what really, really... And you have to remember, at this point in time, Sting was, was well on the rise, was as hot as he, as he could be. Sting would not be any hotter than this until the whole NWA Crow Sting. I think probably the only time he was ever hotter in his career. Don't you agree? As the top baby face? Yeah, agreed. And, and and Vader had been very effectively created as an indestructible monster by the company at this point. So great dynamic coming in. Mm-hmm. And in the match, uh, you know, you're talking about guys trying to beat each other. Uh, there was a spot where Vader put Sting in the Scorpion Deathlock. You know, kind of beat the champion with his own move. Right. And Scorpion Deathlock. I mean, to the younger fans, that's. It, it's the sharpshooter, but to the generation before us, uh, they would probably call it the Sasori Gatame, right? Am I, am I saying yeah, that correct? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 but two two things about that. Go ahead. Were you saying something? Oh, oh, I was just gonna say, if if I recall correctly, it's Ricky Choshu that invented that move, right? Right, except he doesn't turn it over. He wouldn't turn it over. It's more like a standing yeah. figure four. It was the way he would use it. But uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I think Ron Garvin uh, would used it for a time in, in yeah. Uh, WWE. Yeah, he used it. Yeah, but it was more like a setup spot. Yeah, but. Two things about that particular thing. One, I love that Vader did that because it fit that bully, bull in the china shop image that he had created. What's more bully than trying to beat a guy with his own move? I mean, that's the ultimate bully move, isn't it? You know, um, Especially and, when you're twice his size. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to bring up when you bring that up, I always thought it was, was funny that Sting and Bret Hart's ascension to main event status were almost parallel. Sting was a little ahead of than Brett, but Brett caught up with him about a year after this when he got his first world title run. Isn't it amazing the top two baby faces and the top two companies were essentially using the same finisher that just used different names? I was bizarre yeah. as a fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first saw Bret Hart debut and they called it the Sharpshooter, I'm like, uh, that's a Scorpion Deathlock. <laughs> you know? They were the, you know, the same move. They were the top, same top guys. Mm-hmm. But Sting made a comeback, hit a fireman's carry drop, and he he's like got Vader on his shoulders, and he's like quivering before he finally is able to to drop him. You know, little, right. little things. You know, if you want to know if you want to know good selling, this match is a good example. Sure, sure, and I said um, totally different yeah, than yeah. like a steamboat flare, but doesn't make it any less entertaining. It's just a different entering style. That's all. But Sting, uh, but uh, there was a ref bump just long enough to factor in whether it might have been a three count when Sting hit the German suplex. Right. And then Sting hit a stinger splash where uh, he mainly hit the post more than he hit Vader. He like, so, was so, so excited he like Vader flew hit. over Vader. And, and, and yeah, mm-hmm. that was, it was a great finish. I like the finish. Yeah, because it's not that Vader, cause then Vader hit his powerbomb and, and uh, got the pin. But it's not that Vader convincingly beat Sting. It's mm-hmm. that Sting hit the post in his comeback. Right. And that was the difference maker. So you have perfectly good grounds for a rematch. Sure. And it's, 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 it's that. It's that, that question that that's what great, that's what great booking is. Does, you know, you as a fan are asking yourself, well, does Vader even get that power bomb if Sting doesn't rattle his own noggin on the, on the post? That's what you're mm-hmm. asking yourself. And to see that, that's, that's good booking. That's good booking. Yeah. Nowadays they would just talk about a, re- a rematch clause, which would be done in the next free show. But, right. Right. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that the announcers uh, put over Sting in defeat about how, how much of a fight he brought to this unstoppable monster. Right, right. 
And it's also effective because, like we said, they've done a really good job at building up Vayer of being this indestructible monster at this point. This is the first time we've ever seen a chink in his armor. This exactly. is the first time that, that, that you know, Vader had taken a step backwards against anybody. So it's, it's, it's hard to book an, a, a, an indestructible monster because what invariably happens is the monster must be destroyed at some point, and then the guy loses all value to the company. Uh, that's fine if it's 1974 and it's WWWF and it's the monster of the month that Vince Senior is bringing in to be co- conquered by, you know, Bruno a month later, right? Not the same in 1992 in WCW. And, and, and if you notice, very few individuals outside of The Undertaker have been able to balance that, to be the indestructible monster, take a step back, show a chink in their armor, and still be perceived later on as indestructible. Maybe Brock right now is currently like that, you know? But it's, it's very, very hard to do. And they were able to do that with Vader fairly effectively until he left the company, I thought, didn't you? Right, I, I agree. And again, going back to those times in the 70s, you, you could have the monster be beaten, and then he would just go to another territory and come right, exactly. back in six months. That's why I called the monster of the month, you know, because <laughs> that's what it was in WWF back mm-hmm. then. And, and, you know, this wasn't happening. And Vader, of course, Vader didn't lose. We're talking about the guy who did win the match, but it did show a chink in his armor. And as you mentioned earlier, he would go on later this, this same calendar year and lose the belt to Ron Simmons. But he still was perceived as an indestructible monster, even after losing the belt. So, I mean, what did that say about how, how mm-hmm. he was booked and then how he performed in his run in WCW? For my right, it's, it's one of the things WCW got the most right, yeah. I think is probably the best way you could say no, it. I totally agree. I, in, in my estimation, this era of Big Van Vader might be the best super heavyweight ever as far as performer meeting expectations in ring with the push he got, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all due respect to Taker and Andre and, and several other, you know, super heavyweights throughout the history of our business. There was about a four-year run there where Vader was, his athleticism was off the charts for a guy who was well over 300 pounds. And you, you, could, you believed as a fan he was an indestructible monster, and he was booked as such. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, anything else about the match you wanted to bring up? Or? No, I, I, I'm with you. I, I think it is a great match. I don't think it gets enough credit. I think we... We think about, um, like I said, Steamboat Flair, Flair Funk. You know, Brett and, and Kurt were having incredibly great matches at this, in the, during this, this time period, too. This is a match that I think, and a, and a feud that doesn't quite get enough credit for that era, in my opinion. You know? Mm-hmm. And this match, if you're, if you're not well, I remember, I remember meeting Sting at a, at a TNA signing mm-hmm. uh, a few years back, and I, I told him that it was his feud with Vader that made me a WCW fan, and he just kind of smiled and said, wow, that, that goes back a while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think, yeah, if you, you know, if you taste of what that era of WCW was, I think that feud was one of the ones that defined about two years on for the company. You know, and, and so this is a good place mm-hmm. to start in that, that match on this show. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wind up our talk with the main event of Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes against the Miracle Violence Connection. Attention all Time Lords and Ladies, Geek Girl Radio presents Examining the Doctor, a weekly look at everybody's favorite Time Lord, the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor to favorite and not-so-favorite episodes of Doctor Who. From Hartnell to Capaldi, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for classic and current Doctor Who fans alike. Examining the Doctor, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at GeekGoRadio.com. All right, we are back. Final segment of the show here, talking WCW Great American Bash 1992. We only got one more match to talk about, and that is the match for the NWA Tag Team Titles, the Miracle Violence Connection of Dr. Death Steve Williams and Terry Bam Bam Gordy facing the newly formed team of Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. Ole Anderson at this time was the senior referee, so he actually refereed this match. And uh, I got a kick uh, all these years later, just, just the way Barry and Dustin bust through the curtain when they're coming out for the main event, like, all right, we're going to bust some, you know, blank. <laughs> well... When you're facing two monsters like Talk and Gordy, is there any other way to approach it? As if you're a baby face. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, let's talk about this for, for a minute. Uh, Dustin, who you've been in the ring with. Oh, yeah. 
Barry, who who you know a bit. I have been in the band Tag with. Tag with both of them, actually, for one time or another. And the late, great Dr. Death and, and Terry Gordy uh, in, the, in the same match. So you legitimately have four hosses here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have tagged and, and or wrestled against two of the guys. Had the pleasure of meeting one. Unfortunately, never had the pleasure of meeting meeting uh, Bam Bam before his untimely death. But uh, did 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 know Doc and uh, met him a couple times, and I'm still consider myself friends with Barry and Dustin. So yeah, but yeah, those are Dustin is the smallest of the four, and he's legitimately six six and about two sixty. So that's <laughs> that's not a small guy, <laughs> right? And I think it's only a matter of time. Uh, Dustin is going to get in the WWE Hall of Fame. He'll, he'll pro- now I'm sure it'll be as Gold Dust. Sure, sure. But uh, you know he's in. Uh, G- Gordy's already in as part of the Freebirds. Mm-hmm. Barry's in. Barry's in as a member of the Horsemen. Uh, but this is clear cut baby faces versus heels. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Doc and Gordy. Now, don't get me wrong. Doc Doc was good when he wanted to be a baby face, but the bulk of his career was a was a heel and. We know how good a heel mm-hmm. the Freebirds were, so there you go. Because uh, uh, the Varsity Club were, were baby faces, right? No, they were heels. They were they were Kevin Sullivan. Oh, okay. Kevin Sullivan was their leader. You want to rethink that? <laughs> Did Sullivan, <laughs> other than early in his career when he, when he was like you know, I mean, a white meat baby face for Vince Senior? Did he ever? Work as a baby face. I think I don't think so. I think he was pretty much a heel most yeah. of his career. Just something about that Bostonian accent. Even if you're from up north, it kind of grates on you by nature. So. But Jesse had a great line uh, calling this match. He said, "Some of the effect of this is wrestling. Who cares about ethics?" <laughs> what a great heel line, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jesse. He he brought a lot to the WCW product as a whole, and this this pay per view in particular. Uh, it, it's no wonder they paid him so much money. And I think that he did give the company instant credibility because he was so associated with WWF so many years. Do you agree or disagree with that? Or Oh, d- d- Jesse, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was so associated as, you know, being the, the guy that was on TV with Vince for so many years, you know. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, I might be wrong. Wasn't it him and Vince that called the Andre Hogan match at WrestleMania three? Didn't they call that show? Uh, well, um, I think Gorilla called. Oh, okay. I, I think it was him and Gorilla. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but but Vince and Jesse probably called the that that infamous TV match with the Hebner switch. Yes, yes. And I'm pretty sure Jesse called the the Warrior Hogan WrestleMania main event. I don't know who his partner yes. was. Yes. But uh, I mean, yeah, that, that was Gorilla and Jesse as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Obviously, we knew Heenan didn't call because Heenan was <laughs> at ringside with Andre. But regardless, my point is not to get away from the Great American Bash. Jesse was a vital part, I think, of this pay per view, and, and this is a good a good barometer on how important I think he was for the company during this run. Right. I, I remember Jim Ross saying something to the effect of uh, working with Jesse isn't isn't easy, but it's never boring. I could see that. I could see that. You know, because you know Jesse does kind of go his own way with everything, it seems. In, in this match, they got the heat on Dustin, hot tag to Barry. Barry got sent into the ring post by Williams. Barry's trying to get back into the ring, and I think Dr. Death's like holding on to his leg just to just to keep him from making the tag. Sure. You know, double down on Gordy and Barry. Dustin tagged in, got cut off. Front face lock by Doc to Dustin, which modern fans would call a rest hold. Right. But I liked this exchange. Doc did the Oklahoma Stampede, but before he could finish with the slam, Barry dropkicked Doc from behind, and Barry and Gordy brawl on the ring apron. Dustin uh, goes for the bulldog, but Doc whips Dustin into Gordy and hits a clothesline for the win. So, again, it, it's not like it was a dominating finish. It, it was a clean finish, mm-hmm. but you know it, it was in the middle of a four-way brawl. Right. So, again, while the, the good guys lost, there's grounds for a rematch. And something else worth mentioning, in the two main events, the heels basically won cleanly in both of them. Yep. So, you know, Sting made a mistake, and Doc, in, in his match, arguably got lucky in you know, in positioning. And w- when, you, when you also factor in that uh, the heels only wrestled twice while the Texans wrestled three times, you know, it, 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 there's enough storytelling there that um, you, you have rematches set up already. And, and all the little things you're talking about are layers that are, that's Bill, that's Bill Watts' thumbprint. If you know Bill Watts' booking, Bill Watts was all about the heat especially on television, you know, uh, get people 
so mad they want to go to the buildings to see the live events. Think about everything you just said. They, they, the baby faces were valiant in defeats in both main events. There were plausible outs for them, so there was there was reason for a rematch. You throw in the extra, the extra layer of, like you said, the 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 baby face tag team had wrestled one more match that night night in the tournament than the, than the heels had. So you've got that unfair advantage. Was it uh, Sting nursing some kind of injury from Vader early on going into that match, or you know so? That's Bill Watts all the way. That's old school wrestling. Put your baby face in peril and let them be valiant, even if even in defeat. You know, mm-hmm. which for my money, that's the kind of wrestling I like. And you know, yeah. I was a baby face who had no problems. I understood that was my job. My job was to go in and to lose, to be valiant in the effort, and to do it in such a way that the fans would would realize I was cheated. And want me to want me to get to enact my revenge, even if it was a clean finish, you know. Now looking over the event, um, I think I can truthfully say there were no bad matches on this card at all. Some were better than others, but sure. you know there there certainly were, were no matches at all where you're just like, uh, can we get this over with? Yeah, every single match served a purpose, were well wrestled, and nothing ever dragged, even though it was a three hour show. Now you teased earlier. Why Why did Doc and Gordy have one less match than Dustin and Barry? Well, they were going to face the Steiners in the first round, and then for whatever reason, Watts put that match on, I think it was a, uh, I think it was either Clash or... It was a Clash. It was the main event of uh, Clash. So... The reason I ask is, that is a little piece of, of personal history for me. Uh, when I first broke into the business and had been training long enough to where I was, my trainers had said, had let me start going out and getting some bookings. I, somebody that one of them had a tape of the match you're speaking of from the clash. And I don't want this getting out there because I want to go to the Shoney's that he owns and eat one day. And I don't want to get hurt. But uh, Scott Steiner got stretched by Doc and Gordy in that match. Uh, I don't know if the untrained eye could go back and watch that match and realize it. But as a worker, I watched it, and it was hilarious because Scott Steiner is, is, is you know, is well known for being a guy that could take liberties if he wanted to, and did on a few occasions. And I, I think the stories of Rick and Scott's uh, less than uh, amicable ribs on some guys are famous as well, or infamous, maybe I should say. So to see Scott get a taste of his own medicine, it was kind of funny, um, you know. <laughs> And it was very, uh, it was very apparent because it was, it was one of those things that I remember like it was yesterday and it was 20 something years ago when I watched this and I haven't watched it since, even though it's on the network. In fact, I might watch that tonight after we get done recording, uh, where, you know, I remember Rick had worked with Doc, with Dork, the Doc and Gordy before in Mid-South early in his career. Scott Hatton, Scott was still in college and Scott and, and, and Doc, or sorry, Rick and Doc used to be riding buddies. They were always friends. And, and the general, the general beef in the business was that Rick was very professional and was much lighter and, and, and didn't take liberties with guys as much. Scott could be a little bit stiff and could be a little bit careless, you know? And, you know, Scott got in there and he got, he tried to muscle uh, Bam Bam over on something. And it was obvious Bam Bam did not want to go. And sorry, I don't care how strong you are, Scott. At that point, Bam Bam's the, 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 he's the veteran. You he, you gotta go with what he says, but he tried anyways, and it, it was kind of an ugly spot. And Gordy took him down, and he started talking in his ear. And you know, I remember the announcers coming up saying he was talking trash. Smart fans might have thought he was calling a spot. I can tell you exactly what he was saying. He was saying, "We can do this the easy way or the hard way, kid. Your choice." You know, and um, he had him hooked. He had his leg hooked in a legitimate hold, and. Scott tried something. He let him back up. Scott tried something again. Terry took him down. He called. He he tagged in Doc, and then it really got ugly. <laughs> it got just. Mm-hmm. I mean, oof. and I don't think I need to tell you or any of our listeners. It's pretty well documented how how tough and, and, and you know Doc Doc Doctor Death Steve Williams was in his heyday. You know, um, and then right. Scott got out and he tagged in Rick, and amazingly went back to like a normal work match. Funny how that works out, right? <laughs> but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I go back and look for the clash right before this, listeners. If you want to see 
you know, I know all the time I hear people ask me, well, when did wrestling ever get real? That's a match I could, that's fairly easily accessible. I could, I could point to them. Uh, did they, I mean, it, don't go in thinking you're going to see UFC, but you're going to see two guys that know how to handle themselves, take care of a young guy who can handle himself as well, but wasn't quite as far up the pecking order as he thought he was at that point. And I'll just leave it at that. Worth, worth, worth a watch, folks. So if you haven't seen it yet, folks, it is a, a very very easy to find on the network if you know how to look through old uh, pay-per-views. It's 1992, WCW, Great American Bash. Hopefully you would get some insight as to why I like that show so much and why I liked that period of WCW so much. So, uh, I mean, Trane, I think it's easy for you to see why, right? I mean, you know, oh, yeah. again, tag yeah. team tournament. Sure, yeah. Ask me I mean, at hello. <laughs> right. Oh, I know you love tournaments, and, and, and we both love tag teams. Um Tag teams are just, they're easy. I mean, if if you know what you're doing, if four guys, are, it's just easier to do things with four guys than it is two. You know, easier to tell a story. The moves can be more spectacular. The drama can be amped up. It's it's a little more complicated because there's, there's, there's more moving parts. But, you know, I, I, as much as I love Steamboat Flair, I love Rock Austin, you know, Tiger Mask, Dynamite Kid, give me a Ricky Robert versus the Midnight's any day of the week. Give me the Hart Foundation versus the Bulldogs any day of the week. Give me the Dudleys versus the Hardys or Edge and Christian any day of the week. Just fun, you know? Absolutely. That's going to wind up this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll be back shortly with a look. We'll be back shortly with another topic. I don't know whether we'll do another show or if we're going to talk another territory or maybe look at the career of a particular wrestler. It's one of the things we like to do in, in Classic Wrestling Memories is have some variety. So if there's anything you want us to talk about, uh, we can be reached at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The, uh, the Facebook page is A1-Wrestling.com or The Wrestling Brethren. Uh, Twitter is TWBP Show on Twitter. And Train, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, it's CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter, correct? That is correct. So drop us a line. Let us know what you, let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we could do better. And again, let us know if there's anything you want us to talk about. So, with that said, uh, we're going to mosey on out of here, and we'll be back next time with episode 15 of Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.